0: morning. morning. Not to denigrate anything that Lisa was saying earlier on in the the story of the healing, but it reminded me uh, of an occasion when uh, a vicar on a Sunday morning was offering uh, prayers for healing and a chap went up to him and said, uh, vicar, would you pray for my hearing? Uh, And so the vicar said yes and he laid his hand on the man's ear and prayed. And um, after a short while he said, "And, and how is that? And he said, I don't know. He said, I'm not due in court till Tuesday. (laughs) Sorry. Bit bit naughty. Bit naughty. Oh dear. Doesn't get any better, does it? You haven't missed this at all. Well, it's very, very surreal. Very surreal standing here. First of all, um, greetings from brothers and sisters uh, at the Windmill United Benefice. That's the churches of St. Bartholomew Burstow, St. Mary the Virgin at Horn, and St. John the Baptist at Outwood, who uh, are aware that I'm here this morning uh, and do send love and greetings. Uh, I'm probably glad that I'm not with them this morning. (laughs) Um, Looking out, seeing so many people here as well, it uh, it reminds me again of a uh, a story of a bishop who uh, uh, went to a a service and um, only three people turned up. Uh, to hear him preach and he said to the vicar afterwards uh, so uh, you, you didn't tell people that I was coming and uh, the vicar said no but the word seems to have got out anyway <laughs> uh, obviously you didn't know I was coming otherwise you would have uh, been having a breath of fresh air or outside doing the gardening right. so I wonder what it costs you to be a Christian. And no, I'm not talking about finance and the costs there are to maintain the ministry and outreach here at Christchurch, or the cost that you might have to now pay out or meet uh, with regards to the new youth minister. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about personal cost. What has been the personal cost to you or continues? to be born by you in being a follower of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. It may well be that for a few here, there have been issues amongst family and or friends by you taking your step of faith and either being the odd one out or having turned away from another creed held by your family. But for the vast majority of us, however, I suspect that we are quite simply allowed to get on with it, as it were, without any uh, interference from outside influence. A number of you will no doubt remember, with great fondness, the late, great Bill Black, a former member of the fellowship here at Christchurch, and for me, no doubt, is one of the principal reasons why I'm standing here this morning. Spread around the UK and probably beyond, there are a number of us of a certain age who came to faith and continue in that faith because of the witness and example lived out by Bill in his role as our youth leader. Bill was mercilessly ridiculed, mocked, and jibed at his workplace because of his love for Jesus. A love that he just simply couldn't stop telling other people about. In a warehouse at one of the depots where he worked, his detractors erected a pulpit and made him preach to them. Bill obliged them invoking more barracking and abuse in the process. But for him, though, it was a cost he was prepared to make. After all, he said, he was never led away to be whipped and crucified, so taunts and words were nothing compared to the cost paid for us by Jesus. Yes, probably, like others, I've been on the end of some sarcastic comments made by work colleagues. But on the whole, the fact that I was a Christian in an environment where not many were wasn't actually really much of an issue. Though heaven help you, should you take a step out of line? You're a Christian! You shouldn't say or do that. Yeah. Interesting how even though they may not believe they will hold you up as an example of how they believe life should be lived. Almost as if you are a role model that they would somehow like to emulate but can't quite bring themselves to actually do. Clearly, some of what Bill said during his conversations at work must have stuck as there were a good number of his ex-colleagues who came to his Thanksgiving service here in Christchurch. One Sunday morning during the service, a 2,000 strong congregation were surprised to see two men enter, both covered from head to toe in black and carrying assault weapons. One of the men asked out loud, anyone willing to take a bullet for Christ, remain where you are. Immediately, the choir fled, the band fled. The deacons fled, and most of the congregation fled. Out of the 2,000, there only remained 20. The man who had spoken took off his hood, looked at the preacher and said, okay, pastor, I've got rid of all the hypocrites. Now you can begin your service. Have a nice day. True story. What cost have you paid? What cost would you be prepared to pay in order to stand up, take your cross and follow Christ. Our reading from Matthew, which Simon read to us just now, thank you, on discipleship is challenging with Jesus teaching about the cost of following him and the importance of acknowledging him before others. Do not think, he said, that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. At first, this passage, a picture of what Life will be like for the disciples once they begin proclaiming the gospel seems rather grim, talking as it does about division and conflict, especially amongst one's own family. But as with so many passages, when lifted out of the Bible in isolation, it's a complicated reading and it requires some looking at. These verses are part of a much larger conversation that Jesus was sharing with his disciples about discipleship. In the previous chapter, chapter 9, we see Jesus traveling from place to place, healing the sick and the suffering. He heals a paralytic man. He then calls Matthew, a detested tax collector, to drop everything and follow him. He continues by raising to life the dead daughter of the leader of the synagogue. He heals the woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. He restores the sight of two blind men and then heals a demonic mute, showing compassion to the crowds who followed him. And then in chapter 10, all begins, happily enough, with Jesus calling out the 12 of his most trusted followers, to be his chosen disciples and upon whom he confers great authority, the power to do the same as he had been doing himself, healing the sick and broken, casting out unclean spirits, curing every disease and sickness. And in addition, Jesus provides them with God's message of hope, the gospel to proclaim. He sends the twelve out in gentleness, telling them that it's not their role to fight when the going gets rough. They're not to browbeat people with the gospel. If people don't like what the gospel has to say, then they're to move on. It's quite as simple as that. The disciples are to be gentle souls, loving proclaimers of the gospel, not warriors. Their lives are to be consistent with the message that they're called to proclaim full of grace and mercy reflecting God's love for everyone but this conversation this teaching and commissioning which starts with such a non-violent loving gospel proclamation quite quickly spirals into a grim warning to the disciples warning that they're going to get assaulted arrested falsely accused And worse, despite proclaiming and living out a message of hope, love and grace, they themselves will be hated, despised by some of those whom they encounter. Their very words will lead to discord and breakdown within families on account of the disagreements that will result of them hearing the gospel. And Jesus then declares, contrary to what many people at the time probably wanted to hear or expected to hear, that he's come to earth not to bring peace, but a sword. A declaration highlighting the fact that Jesus' teachings often challenge the norms of society and that they can and will create division among families, friends, communities, and churches. These words that Jesus quotes are from the Old Testament book of the prophet Micah, written some many hundreds of years before. And Micah is warning the people of Israel that their behavior and their life as a people and as a nation has slipped down so far that they won't even be able to trust the lover in their own arms. They can't trust the judges because, well, they're all on the take. They can't trust the rulers because they're all out to line their own pockets with ill-gotten gains. A lament over a society gone badly wrong. I wonder where we've heard that before. The prophet, however, ends his litany of doom by declaring, but as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Saviour. My God will My God will hear me. In other words, in the face of fathers and sons, mothers and daughters rising up against one another and of a person's enemies coming chiefly from within their own household, the one hope you can cling on to is the coming of God to make all things right. We know that Jesus will ultimately bring peace, but until then, the disagreements and the divisions will continue, even to the most core of relationships and in the most, uh, the most core places. Allegiances will be tested and will on occasion be broken. Allegiances to family and friends as well as to ourselves and to our church. So why is the gospel, going to be so hated? What is the issue? What is it that lies behind the negative, sometimes even violent reaction, which some have to the Christian faith? Why has, does, and will the gospel cause such division and strife, even amongst those so previously bonded together? Why on occasion can there be a cost to pay for letting others know of the message of the Christian hope. Well, we have, I think, to admit that sometimes it's because the bearers of the gospel are themselves glaringly unchrist like in their behavior and attitude. In times gone by, the church at times itself tried to convert people at the point of a sword or on threat of execution. Certain medieval popes were nothing less than gangsters who literally had their enemies assassinated, including other popes. Eventually, the followers of Jesus weren't the ones being thrown to the lions or being left locked up in jail. Instead, it was those followers of Jesus who were throwing other people into jail because of their unbelief. During the time of the Reformation and the conflicts between the Protestants and the Roman Catholic religions, families were ripped apart and turned upside down as the alternative factions were followed by differing members of the same family, with some even being portrayed to the authority by those families. Sons fought against fathers and brother against brother during the Civil War as conflict grew between the Catholics and the Puritans. I remember having a quite deep conversation uh, with a colleague at work who uh, once said that he wanted no part of any religion because he blamed religion for the vast majority of wars, conflicts and divisions throughout the history of the world. In more recent years, within the Anglican Communion of which we are a part, deep and vitriolic schisms have formed over the question of women priests and bishops, as well as the whole question of sexuality and same-sex relationships. And every week there seems to be another report about an abuse carried out by a church leader. Those looking in from the outside just simply shake their heads in bewilderment and want nothing to do with such a hypocritical church and faith. All issues that have caused relationships to collapse and for people to leave either their own church or indeed the wider church completely. And for these and a thousand other reasons, it's not difficult to understand perhaps why the gospel has been rejected and or despised by those outside. The gospel becomes polluted when those who share and bear the message are themselves living at cross purposes with that gospel message. But it's not just the church at its worst that will be rejected, but the church at its very best too. Because there is something at the heart of the gospel message that just doesn't sit right with a good many people. The core of the gospel is grace, love, love, Forgiveness, renewal, hope, and joy. Things that you would have thought everyone would be searching for and craving. I mean, after all, how could anyone not be interested in a gospel that simply drips with love, grace, and hope? Because it's what lies behind that love, grace, and hope that rattles people. God's forgiveness, his grace and his mercy look great on the outside until they realize it means accepting that they are a sinner and that they have to change their ways and surrender to God as the way, the truth and the life. A cost that in many cases is simply too much to pay. They are quite happy, thank you very much, living their lives the way they currently do. After all, They're not robbers, murderers, rapists, or crooks. They live mainly quiet, honest lives and don't harm anyone in the process. But people don't like a spotlight being shone onto their lives as it shows up or can show up something about them that they don't want others to see. And when people feel threatened, they become fearful. and Like a cornered animal, they come out on the counterattack, And if they hear a gospel that is telling them that they are in the wrong, and that they need to surrender their life to God's way, then perhaps unsurprisingly, they want to kick back at what they're hearing, because they don't like learning what they hear about themselves, and they don't like to be made to feel guilty and wrong. Admitting one's faults Embracing and accepting grace and forgiveness says something about the whole way you live out your life. And for some, that's just too big a burden of shame, disgrace and dependence to accept and too much of a cost to pay to change. Which command do you think is repeated most often in the Bible? Any guesses? There we go. Right. Well, you might imagine that it's something stern like smarten up, say your prayers, worship God more wholeheartedly, give more money to the church. But you'd be wrong. It's the command that we actually found on three occasions alone in the passage we just had read. Do not be afraid. Fear It's probably one of the strongest emotions that we experience. Fear of things unknown, but also fear of things known, but perhaps hidden away from view of others. Jesus has just warned the disciples that people will start calling them out, that they will be called names, they will be like Bill, they will be jibed and mocked, and that they will suffer physical and emotional violence for his sake. Plenty to be afraid of, and yet, and yet, he tells them not to be afraid. Jesus provides real words of comfort and hope. And here we have one of Jesus' most striking promises about the detailed love and care of God for every one of his creatures, because he knows about every hair. On your head. For some of us, that's easier than others. It's an assurance that serves as a comforting reminder that God is always aware of our struggles, of those times when he knows we are coming under verbal or even physical attack for his sake. After all, just think: if he knows about every single sparrow in the air, the cheapest of birds then how much more does he care and love for you and for me and for the people out there, his beloved children? Just think about that. He knows the hairs on your head, and he knows every single sparrow, but he also knows you, and he loves you, and he cares for you. And he will protect you, and he will give you his peace in those times when you feel that you are under attack. He will give you the words to say when you think, I actually ought to make some comment here. I don't like what I've just heard someone say. Do I stand up? He will give you the words to say, fear ye not, Our reading today reminds us that discipleship is a journey of faith that can sorely sorely test us on occasions. And sometimes it can even bring us into real peril. But being a disciple is not a job. It's not an occupation. It is an integral calling to who we are as Christians. Jesus' instructions to his disciples about fear, trusting in God's protection and provision, also applies to our lives today. We shouldn't let fear dictate our actions or prevent us, like Bill, from living out our faith. Instead, we should and must trust in God's promise to protect and provide for us, even in the most challenging of circumstances so as we reflect on the questions raised in this passage may we consider how this teaching on discipleship, sacrifice and trust in God can, does and should shape each one of our own faith journeys are we willing to prioritize our relationship with God and with Jesus Christ as our saviour above all else, even when it comes to the cost of friendships, relationships, and even our own selfish ego. Can we find the courage to publicly acknowledge our faith, even faced with opposition? And that's not a call that you've got to go and stand on a soapbox on Pearly High Street. It's just simply at work or talking to friends when they're saying, what did you do at the weekend? And they're talking about, oh yeah, they went to the pub or they went shopping and they did this, that and the other. And you just say, yeah, I went to church on Sunday morning. That's all you need to say. Very simple. I went to church. If they come back and ask you about it, then that's an invitation to go. But you don't need to browbeat them and say, oh yes, I went to church. And we all learned that we are, well, we're all sinners, We're all going to hell if we don't get on our knees and give our money to God and and change our ways. You don't need to do that. Jesus quite clearly says, don't browbeat people with the gospel. Just tell them. God loves them. Just confess that you are my follower. Through contemplating, reflecting, and praying on these questions and seeking to apply Jesus' teaching to our lives, we can and will grow in our understanding of what it truly means to be a disciple of Christ. To meet the cost, to be prepared to meet the cost of taking up our cross and following him regardless. And so I leave you with these paraphrased words from the Spanish theologian, John Sobrino. If persons and communities follow Jesus and proclaim the kingdom of God, if they have the courage to speak the truth, if they have the spirit of Jesus and a heart for seeking justice and peace, if they have the courage to stand before God in prayer, If they have found in this discipleship the pearl of great price and the way to God. If they abide with God in the cross of Jesus and the numberless crosses of history. And if in spite of all of this, their hope is mightier than death. If they discover in this discipleship and in this faith more happiness in giving than in receiving. If they are prepared to give up their own lives and life itself, that others may have life. If they surrender themselves instead of living for themselves, then they are bearing witness to the greatest of loves. They are responding in love to the God who's loved us first. They are living in the Spirit of God who's been poured into our lives. They are living the gift of God and God as gift before whom the last word, despite and through the horrors of history is a word of thanksgiving. Let's pray. O come, Holy Spirit, inflame our hearts. Set them on fire with love. Burn away our self-centeredness so that we can love others unselfishly. Breathe into us your life-giving breath so that we can freely and joyously unrestricted by self-consciousness, be ready to go wherever you send us. Come like a gentle breeze. Give us your peace so that we may be quiet and know the wonder of your presence. May we never shut you out. Never let us try to limit you to our own abilities. Act freely in us and through us, this day and always. Amen.